Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. Uh, my name is Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, January 16th, 2011. And we are going to start tonight in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 5. And the verse reads, One who mocks a pauper insults his maker. One who rejoices in misfortune will not be exonerated. One who mocks a pauper, excuse me, mocks a pauper, mocks a pauper, insults his maker. One who rejoices in misfortune will not be exonerated. So what kinds of questions can we ask around that verse? One who mocks a pauper, insults his maker. One who rejoices in misfortune will not be exonerated. So, Lewis, good, thank you. What's a pauper? Excellent question. Definitions are extremely important. And Janine, you've asked uh, one who rejoices in misfortune. Yeah, whose misfortune? Yes, Terry also. Uh, yeah, it would make a big difference, I suppose, if it's, uh, you know, a terribly evil person versus not. Okay, and let me add to a couple of thoughts. Why would one mock a pauper in the first place? So the verse is assuming that a person does that. The question is why? And why is doing so an insult to his maker? Uh, and then why would a person rejoice in misfortune? Seems like a little bit of an odd thing. And how does it work out that someone who rejoices in misfortune will not be exonerated? Uh, so, let's see if we can uh, make some sense out of this. Ross, thanks for, uh, for that definition. A pauper is a poor person, someone who is poor and is having to struggle to make ends meet, uh, maybe can't get enough money for food, shelter, shelter or clothing. Uh, I don't know that there's any exact line drawn in the sand, but... Uh, generally, I think a pauper is a person who is really struggling just to meet their basic life necessities. So I'd suggest to the first question, why does one mock a pauper? And I'll suggest that by doing so, a person is psychologically able to separate himself from that person. A person who makes fun of someone else psychologically separates them themselves from that person and generally makes fun of them, I'll suggest, because they consider themselves to be better than that other person. Uh, so they will make fun of them to put them down and it psychologically like moves that person into a separate class of, of being in the person's mind. Because if they saw themselves as exactly the same as that person uh, and identified with them completely, then be very difficult to make fun of them or mock them. But if I see them as lower than me, separate from me, different from me, then uh, I can make that separation. And I can say, ah, you know, I'm better than them. I worked hard. I earned my money. Look at them. And uh, so I can make a distance there. Um, one of the rabbis pointed out to me that that's what the Nazis 
did during the Second World War with regard to looking at the Jewish people. They, in their minds, put them in a completely different class so that in their minds they could then rationalize the destruction of them. Because if they saw those people as the same thing as themselves, you know, human being on the planet trying to survive, they wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, but rather they, they saw them as, you know, lower level entities. Uh, and so then they could rationalize uh, killing them. Now, why does a person doing that, why is that an insult to his maker, you know, referencing God? And I'll say here that that's because he is attributing his own good fortune to himself rather than recognizing that everything is in the hands of Hashem. So person is, you know, getting along well in life, whatever, sees a poor person, walks by him, disdain, doesn't want to have anything to do with them because he rationalizes to himself, ah, you know, the guy would just go get a job. If the guy would just work for a living like I've done, you know, I've developed the fortune I have. I drive the car I have because, uh, you know, of all the stuff that I do, attributing it all to his own efforts and his own self rather than recognizing that the whole thing is in the hands of God. He sees himself as in control. Now, by doing that, by attributing the situation to himself, he insults the one, and that's one with a capital O, the one who truly brought it about. In essence, he's stealing the credit from God. If you can imagine um, working for uh, uh, someone, you have someone working for you and you've, you've set them up in business and you've given them everything. They had nothing when they walked in the door. You set them up, gave them a stake uh, uh, to, to get going, gave them some capital to work with, funded their office, got them some clients, and now they're cooking along and there's some income coming in. And then you hear the person out in the marketplace saying, yeah, you know, I built this business from the ground up and, you know, I'm really good at this and da 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 gives you absolutely no credit for it, but takes it all on themselves. That would be an insult to you. Uh, and so a person who mocks a pauper and is basically saying, you know, that everything I did is, is my own is mocking uh, Hashem. In addition, that person is failing to recognize that God created the poor person as well. Uh, and that he, too, the poor person, is a creation of Hashem. And so by, by mocking that person or putting them down, it's uh, a put down to the creator of that person. Um, and... So, Terry, you said, I think we, I assume you meant, see some of this mocking in animal social hierarchies and in young children. Um, I'm not sure about the animals, and, and I welcome if you want to elaborate on that, but I, I agree with you. We see a phenomenon, interestingly, in young children where they seem to go out of their way sometimes to put down, uh, you know, others who are different from them or... 
you know, don't don't quite fit in, or maybe the, the uh, one child's a little bit quiet and the other kids go after him and, and so forth. Uh, and it seems like there's this tendency to gang up, uh, if you will, and and make fun of or put down or mock a person who's different or maybe somebody who you know stutters or does something that other kids see as not being cool. Uh, there's there's a tendency to do that, and uh, so uh, yes, we 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 definitely see that, and you know I think. Kids have to grow. I mean, kids are operating on the basis of their emotions at that point in their lives and not are probably not reached a point where they can start to really analyze an idea and uh, look at a situation rationally. That starts to come, generally speaking, I think around the ages of, you know, 12, 13, uh, right in there. So, yes, we do see that phenomenon. Um, and and yes, Terry pecking orders, you know, I'm this even in in certain, um, you know, business situations where someone at a particular level sees the people below them as, you know, it, it's in some way sort of like a lower life form, you know, oh, it's just the, the janitor or those are just the administrative assistants or, you know, we're the real people that make the real decisions around here. Uh, and so it's a subtle mocking of other people, of seeing that, you know, I'm elite uh, and, and others are not. I mean, there, there used to be, you know, the days of, of the executive washroom kind of thing, you know, where when you get to be an executive, you get to go in this bathroom, but all the rest of you lower people go over here. Um, so, you know, some of that still, uh, you know, can carry over into our our lives today, and we have to, you know, be on guard for it. Ross, you've mentioned Job thirty one verse thirty, which reads, "No, I have let my mouth uh, sin neither by cursing my enemy nor by praying that he may die." Uh, excellent. So yeah, we don't want to uh, uh, curse our enemies. In fact, very interesting. Uh, I think r related to that verse is the story of when David uh, was uh, leaving Jerusalem in fear of his son Absalom, uh, who was trying to take over the kingdom. And, uh, you know, he said, um, uh, rather than, than curse the situation, he essentially said as he's leaving town, you know, if God wills it, I'll be able to come back. And if not, then, you know, that's God's decision. Uh, and there's a, a man, you know, while David's leaving, who's like throwing dirt at him and cursing him. And uh, uh, David's, uh, I think, servants say, you know, let, let me kill this guy, you know. Uh, and David says, no, uh, you know, don't, don't do that. Uh, so very, uh, very important verse. So that's the first half. So now let's look at the second half. One who rejoices in misfortune will not be exonerated. So I would suggest that it's a very similar kind of case that a person who rejoices in misfortune wants to psychologically make himself better than someone else. And he thinks that by 
lowering them or them being lowered by the misfortune, somehow that raises him up. Okay. Definitionally, the term exonerated means to be found innocent. Um, but he thinks that, you know, somehow by rejoicing in that, that somehow makes him better. Or there's a psychological satisfaction of, ah, that guy got what he deserved, you know. Look, his business has all failed. And, and somehow it, it uh, you know, has the, the temptation of making us psychologically feel better. Um, uh, although I, I will suggest that it doesn't really. Uh, and that that's a very false sense of satisfaction. Uh, and that if you've ever experienced it, and I haven't done a study on this, I can only speak from my own personal experience. But I once had a situation in my life where someone did something uh, which I considered to be very, very wrong uh, to me. And it was kept secret for a while. Uh, and... Uh, I thought, you know, when that person is found out and this all comes to light, uh, they're really going to get theirs. And finally it happened that the whole situation came to light of what the person had done. And what happened for me was quite different than what I expected. Uh, you know, the old idea, revenge is sweet, not my experience. In fact, the, the day that it happened and I recall the phone call that I received uh, when I learned that this person's actions had finally come out, uh, you know, to, uh, to those around them, is that the whole thing just made me sick to my stomach uh, and was very troubling. It was, it was very sad. It was very hollow. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't any uh, uh, rejoicing or, or any sense of goodness in it at all. It just was a very sort of sickening experience. So the person who rejoices in misfortune is, is, I suggest again, trying to psychologically make himself better than someone else. Now, the verse says he will not be exonerated. Question is, well, how does that work? And what I'll suggest is that his attitude, this attitude of I'm better than you, is eventually going to show up in his relations with other people. Uh, and there will be some relationship consequences to that attitude. A person who thinks they are better than other people uh, due to you know rejoicing in someone else's misfortune, that attitude is going to find its way out into other relationships. And in a practical way, uh, he will not be found innocent. People will figure that out. Okay, They pick it up after a while. And, and in addition, that person has a conflict with reality because he thinks he's better than other people. And that conflict is going to create some kind of discomfort in his life, either consciously or unconsciously. He may not consciously admit it, but his denial of that isn't going to help. He's still going to have an unconscious conflict. So he's got two things that are going to come back at him. One is his relationship with other people. You know, he will not be found to be an innocent person. And the second is that he's going to have a conflict uh, within himself. So he's not going to be ultimately exonerated, uh, you know, in terms of practical consequences in this life, not to mention, uh, you know, what may happen in the next life.
Okay, any questions on that? All right, in that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 6. And this verse reads, The crown of elders is grandchildren, and the glory of children is their parents. An interesting sort of uh, relationship uh, puzzle here. The crown of elders is grandchildren, and the glory of children is their parents. Jim, great question. Is that true of any grandchildren? Or do we have to make some kind of uh, qualification? And any parents? Very good. Is the glory of children always their parents? And do we actually see that operating in the world? Or is there some qualification here? We might also ask, why are the grandchildren the crown of elders? And why is the glory of children their parents? And then, what's the first half have to do with the second half? And what's the whole verse trying to tell us all together? So, Jim, right off to your point, how could it be that grandchildren could always be a crown of elders? Because what if the grandchildren turn out to be wicked you know, or evil? So... The verse must be talking about grandchildren who are righteous, wise, intelligent, or some combination of those. Because it can't be talking about any grandchildren because it, it just doesn't work in reality. Um, grandchildren who are foolish or ignorant or lazy would not be a crown to an elder. So it's got to be talking about righteousness or wisdom or intelligence or some combination of those. Now, how about parents being a glory to children? Again, Jim, to your point, when they're righteous, when they're wise, when they're intelligent, some combination of those, yes, the children are proud of them. Children look up to them. They're glad to be associated with them. But the opposite would be true for a child who had parents who were foolish or ignorant or lazy. Uh, I mean, who would want to stand up and, you know, see a, a parent who is um, stoned out of their minds and unemployed and not even trying to get work and making crazy decisions and, you know, look at that person and feel like, ah, yeah, the, you know, the glory of my life is, is those people. Now, all of this presumes that the parents, whatever generation we're talking about, the parents teach the children wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, and that this is transferred from one generation to another. And interestingly, also note that it doesn't say the glory of children is their grandparents. It says the glory of children is their parents. Children take pride in their parents, but not necessarily their grandparents. Okay, there's a, there's a different relationship there. The children may have a great relationship with their grandparents, but the glory of those children is not the grandparents. It's the parents if they are operating in accordance with wisdom uh, and knowledge. The Ralbag explains this by pointing out that grandparents 
feel a great affection for their children, but that grandchildren don't necessarily feel that same affection for their grandparents. And I will submit to you that children usually have a closer relationship with their parents than their grandparents. Plus, uh, as the Mitsudas indicates, a person has a greater obligation to honor his parents than his grandparents. You know, we have a, there's a Torah commandment to honor one's father and mother. So, what's the verse telling us practically that we can use here? Meiri tells us that the verse is directing parents to raise their children correctly and that children should follow the lead of their parents who are hopefully acting in an exemplary manner. So then the children are glorified by the parents who follow that path and the parents of the parents have their grandchildren as a crown. And Rabbi Bakya points out that this only works if the children of each generation follow in the paths of their parents. So you've got to have a couple things happening. The parents at every generation have to be modeling appropriate behavior. Yes, Ross, exactly. Do they have to be the example? And the children have to follow in the paths of their parents and take up that example. Uh, one of the challenges that took me, uh, I think, a while to, to face as a parent was the recognition that you can do the very best you can and there are no guarantees. Um, so, you know, Isaac had both Jacob and Esau and Isaac was a very great man. So there are no guarantees in life because at some point the children have free will and they make a choice as to whether they're going to, um, you know, go down one path or another which is why I would submit it's very important rather than trying to rule children by authority uh, that it's more important to teach them to be thinkers so that they can make decisions on their own and uh, you know, be able to reason out what works better, what does not, uh, and realize that the life that you are modeling is the best life, not because, oh, I got to be like mom and dad, but because they look at the array of possible behaviors out there that they could take on in the world and they realize, wow, this is the best approach. This is the best life. Uh, you know, I think I may have shared with you that uh, years and years ago, um, Rabbi Moskowitz said to my wife, uh, who was relatively new to uh, our studies in this, he said, I can prove to you that the Torah life is the best life to live. Not like world to come, but right here, right now, in this physical world. And uh, she said, okay, you're on. And a number of months later, after many classes and many discussions and whatever, she said to me, you know, one day, he's done it. He's proved it to me, that the Torah life is the best life. That's the kind of decision that we want our kids to make because once they see it themselves clearly, they own it, and it's really theirs. They're not just doing it because mom and dad said so. Lori and Terry, you bring up a great point. Uh, you're raising grandchildren. That happens more and more 
it seems like these days, where grandparents uh, are raising the grandchildren. Ross, yes, you as well. Um, and, you know, that happens for a variety of circumstances. And uh, so here again, you have the opportunity as grandparents, because you are spending so much time with the children, to, uh, I guess, substitute for the parents in that regard. And that's teach the children to, uh, to be thinkers and to work through ideas and the, the, the benefits of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and pursuing a life of learning. And then to the degree that they hang around you and you model that and they see the benefits, you know, gets them in the right place. Um, and Linda, you as well, niece and, and nephew, happens a lot. So we have the opportunity to influence lots of lives, depending on what our family circumstances are. And this verse is telling us how important it is to raise those children uh, correctly and get them pointed in the right direction. Okay, any questions on those ideas or this verse? All right, then let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 7, which reads... Lofty speech is unbecoming in a degraded person, much less lying lips to a generous person. Lofty speech is unbecoming in a degraded person, much less lying lips to a generous person. So what do you think the questions are around that verse? Jim, you've said you might think lofty speech would raise the degraded speech. Yeah, very interesting. So why, first of all, we probably need to define what's lofty speech, and then what's a degraded person, and why is that unbecoming in a degraded person? Uh, what's the phenomenon there? Ross, you've said arrogant speech is unbecoming of a fool. Okay, very good. We'll... Uh, We'll get into that. And Terry, yes, is this putting on airs? Could be. Uh, could be. Let's hold that question. That's a good one. Um, and and so we, we've got, I suppose, really two. Why is lofty speech unbecoming in a degraded person? And why are lying lips unbecoming in a generous person? Seems like an interesting juxtaposition there. So... The commentators give a number of different interpretations uh, of this verse. I'd like to focus in on the Ibn Ezra's approach, and then I'd like to give a different uh, interpretation of my own. Ibn Ezra looks at the first part of the verse as saying, a degraded person is not comfortable with lofty words. In other words, someone who's degraded, and presumably that would mean someone who is uh, not able to, uh, you know, think through ideas uh, well or has degraded generally means to go backwards, go, go downhill backwards. Um, so someone who is, uh, I guess, gone downhill backwards in whatever area that we're talking about, Presumably, that would be someone who's not interested in hearing the speech of the wise. So, and that speech could lead him to personal growth if he were willing to listen to it. But rather, he's not comfortable with it. So, a person who's degraded will not be open 
to the wisdom of the wise. Okay. Um, now, uh, Jim, you said why generous in particular? Yes, that's a good question. And, and Terry, why would a generous person lie? Also a very good question. Um, and then Jim, why did, why did they use the term generous rather than righteous? Okay, good. The, the Ibn Ezra interprets the second half as meaning, nor does a noble person desire lying speech. In other words, a noble person does not have any interest in lies or falsehood. So in the Ibn Ezra's interpretation, the verse is telling us what types of speech each person wouldn't be comfortable with. The degraded person wouldn't be interested in words of wisdom, and the noble or generous person wouldn't be interested in lies. Okay, so that's his approach to the verse. And before I go on, let me just stop and make sure there aren't any questions on that. Okay. So, given that, I'd like to offer a different interpretations, and this one is mine. Uh, and first, I'll suggest that lofty speech is where someone is trying to talk about high-level ideas of wisdom, knowledge, or ethics. Okay? Something of a very high nature. Now, it's unbecoming in a degraded person because there is an incongruence there. It's like a man who is drunk speaking about the dangers of alcohol. No one will listen because it's not congruent. I mean, they know the guy's drunk and they know he's not living in accordance with the idea he's espousing. So... I'm going to suggest that people look for congruence when they listen to a person. By congruence, I mean, does the person live up to or is living in line with the values that he or she is espousing? Somebody once said that people don't go to hear public speakers for the content of what the speaker is saying. They go to hear whether there is congruence between the person and the ideas they're giving over. In other words, is the person real? And it seems like people hunger for that, the quality of integrity and authenticity. They want to go hear somebody who is saying ideas and living in accordance with them. And as long as they're not, you know, evil, uh, there's, a, there's a draw to that. Uh, we, we like people who are congruent. Uh, it just it, There's something about authenticity and integrity that I submit uh, draws uh, people to a person who has those characteristics. By the same token, I'll suggest that people can virtually smell hypocrisy and that they are repelled by it. So when a degraded person tries to give forth lofty speech, it just doesn't work, and it's very unbecoming. It's very unattractive. It's very unseemly. Then the second half of the verse 
says, much less lying lips to a generous person. And again, we'd have here another case of a severe disconnect with regard to integrity. A generous person is one who we would naturally expect to be truthful. When we see a generous person who lies, it's an integrity disconnect. It just doesn't fit. I mean, we're automatically troubled because uh, we expect to see congruency in a person. We don't quite know what to do with that. Here's a person who gives out money generously to the poor and does deeds that we would, you know, see um, as as being very positive, and so we, you know, start to form a positive image of that person, and then we turn around and we find them lying. It's like, well, what do I do with that? You know, it's it just doesn't fit. Um, now. Why is the second half worse than the first half? Because the first half says lofty speech is unbecoming, says much less lying lips to a generous person. So in the first half, we have someone who's degraded and they're trying to look lofty, okay? It bothers us, but it doesn't bother us as much uh, as the second half. It's not, much, it's not as much of a surprise as the second half when we have a generous person who lies. Because in the second half, we're seeing a generous person and we expect him to live up to a certain set of values. In the first half, the fact that the degraded person is incongruent eh, doesn't totally surprise us so much because we don't particularly have high expectations of a degraded person. But we expect a generous person, somebody who has a character quality that we admire, to perform consistently at a high level. And the lying lips that he comes forth with seems more surprising and incongruent to us. And Jim, yes, the cognitive dissonance created by the second half can create a certain cynicism uh, in, in a person where you say, yeah, you know, yeah, he's generous, but gee whiz, look at how he really lives, you know. So what's the verse teaching us? I'll suggest that it's teaching two things. First of all, the importance of congruence, of living a life of integrity where our deeds match our words and our words match our deeds, and that people can absolutely sniff that out. Children are really good at that too. You know, the old thing, uh, you know, do as I say, not as I do, you know, kids see through that instantly. Uh, and they're looking way more at what the parent does than they are listening to the things that the, the, the parent says. Uh, we, we tend, I think, at some young ages to be sort of imitation machines and we imitate uh, what's around us. So it's very important to live in accordance with the philosophy that we espouse. The second thing that I think this verse is teaching us is that the higher the level a person is on, the more that is expected of him. Again, we don't expect that much of a degraded person, and we find that that lofty speech is unbecoming, but a generous person, that's a person we would see at a higher level. We expect more of them. And so a person who exhibits high character qualities in one area is going to expect be expected to exhibit them in other areas. And if he doesn't, the disconnect 
will seem even more pronounced than a similar disconnect by a lower level person. Okay, any questions on that? All right, then let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 8. To its owner, a bribe is like a charming gem. Wherever he turns, he will succeed. That's a fascinating setup here. To its owner, a bribe is like a charming gem. Wherever he turns, he will succeed. What kind of questions pop out from that? Ah, Jim, good. Who's the owner of the bribe? Okay. And are we saying that a bribe is good? Yes. Gee, charming gem, you know. Uh, Terry, good. What's a charming gem? What does that mean? Okay. Any other questions? Okay, Jim, charming is beguiling. Yes, could be. And a question that I would ask is, how can someone who is owning a bribe, how can we say wherever he turns, he will succeed? I mean, that would seem to contradict the general idea we would have of Proverbs. I mean, a bribe is a bribe. I mean, it's dishonest, it's deceitful. It's how can a person who does that succeed? And, and what, what's, the, what's going on between the first half and the second half? And what, what's King Solomon trying to, to get at here? So the commentators give a number of different interpretations of this, including different interpretations, Jim, to your question about who the owner is. However, I would like to give over Rabbi Moskowitz's interpretation, which I find compelling. Rabbi Moskowitz thinks this is not talking about bribery in general. Uh, the term charming gem or stones of grace, he suggests, is about a way of attracting people. It's the way you look, the way you talk, that sort of thing. He wants to interpret the verse this way. So the person thinks that the stone of grace... Okay, the way they look, the way they talk, whatever, is what makes them successful. And how does that work? When you wear a precious stone, okay, think about why, why does somebody wear like a really precious stone? You know, a beautiful emerald or a diamond or, or whatever. Um, other, apart from perhaps a, you know, a standard wedding ring that you might you know, wear just because uh, you do. When you wear a precious stone, Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting that's to get people to accept you. It is a means of gaining acceptance. Note here that the verse does not talk about money because you don't wear money, but precious stones are worn in public. They advertise your status, so to speak. In essence, they are a way to get the public to accept you. Okay. Now, Moni, you said his character is like Pharaoh's was, uh, will be on their head as Hashem wills. I'm not sure I understand your question there. Uh, I'd have to ask you to elaborate. 
I'm not uh, particularly in the second half. I'm not sure uh, what what you're meaning. Maybe you can give a little more uh, on that. With regard to the public accepting you, one of the needs for acceptance is that if people accept me, then I'm correct in all of my thoughts. Because after all, the public accepts me. In other words, it's a quality in the need of acceptance, that I need acceptance from the public, and then I can view myself as successful or intelligent. As long as I'm accepted, then I'm successful or intelligent. People need the okay of others in order to be okay. So the verse is telling us about the problem and the inherent danger of that need for acceptance by the public and how that can lead to not necessarily correct conclusions that uh, I'm intelligent. A person can, can jump from one to the other. Now, the verse doesn't tell us what to do about it, but Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out, awareness of the danger is a first step. So once I know that the danger is there, then I can do something about it. If I don't see the danger, then it can harm me and I won't even see it coming. Um, okay, and Mona, you've said uh, not a question. The person has the reward now and the not in the world to come. Um, Maybe. Uh, I wouldn't want to necessarily draw the conclusion that because a person has a, uh, a, a precious stone or something like that, that they're being given a reward now versus not in the world to come. Uh, and, and I may not be interpreting your statement correctly, but um, I mean, there are people who are very, very righteous and also very, very wealthy. Um, so that's, uh, there's not necessarily a, uh, a, a correlation there. Um, that's correct. The character of the individual will show. Uh, so you'll be able to, you know, probably find that out. Um, and d depending on if it's, you know, uh, Two, whether we're talking about real stones or just the idea of getting people to accept you. In the Rabbi Moskowitz interpretation, uh, where we're talking about various ways that uh, you know, people get acceptance, then yes, uh, we can certainly see the character of the individual, particularly in the extremes where people put themselves out there and you can tell they're playing for the audience, they're playing for the public, they're they're wanting that acceptance. It's, in fact, it's probably a huge psychological drive for them uh, that they, they have to do that uh, and you know, put on that show because they need that uh, public acceptance as, as part of their psyche in order to you know, feel like they're okay. Uh, and someone mentioned earlier in the comments uh, about uh, Terry, you said, is this putting on airs? Yes, it, it, I think in this interpretation, it absolutely could be, uh, where you're, you're, you're basically playing for the gallery, uh, so to speak. And 
that could be in terms of you know putting on precious stones it could be for a variety of things that does not mean necessarily and this is an important um, distinction that does not mean that putting on a precious stone means you are playing for the gallery but that certain people will play to the gallery by putting on precious stones you know i could have a collection of you know emeralds or diamonds or rubies or whatever uh, you know because I have the wherewithal and I happen to enjoy them and when I go out I wear them because you know they're beautiful and, and I'm not trying to impress anybody I don't really care what anybody thinks I just think they you know look good on my outfit um, and, and I like them you know just like putting on a, a nice suit of clothes if I can afford it and I have it you know I do it because it makes me feel good it doesn't matter whether anybody else likes it and then there are people who will do it because they are particularly worried about what everyone else will think. And that's the reason they're doing it. Uh, so you're right, the character of the individual uh, will, will show there. And it's a very dangerous place to get caught up in living your life to play for the gallery. Because you're constantly chasing what everyone else thinks and your measure of yourself and your self-worth uh, and so forth, is all based on what other people happen to be saying about you, uh, which is a pretty unstable place to have to live from. So uh, this gives us a, at least a warning that that danger is out there, and then we would have to work through and figure out uh, how to deal with it. Okay, any questions there? All right, let's see if we can squeeze in one more tonight. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 9 says, He who covers faults is seeking love, but he who repeats the matter, that is, tells over the faults, he separates, and the word in the Hebrew, uh, as I understand it, is aloof, which could mean a friend, a leader, your spouse, whatever. He separates aloof from himself. So he who covers faults is seeking love, but he who repeats the matter. He separates and will say, go with a friend from himself. And let me note that some of the translations differ. Okay, I believe the art scroll takes a little differently from this. Uh, I have three different versions of Proverbs, and I think they all came up with a slightly different version, particularly on uh, the interpretation of the word aloof. Uh, in this, the part that I've denoted up here on the screen as, as friend. But I'm going to go with Rabbi Moskowitz's translation. Uh, if someone has a question on another translation, we can uh, talk about that as well. So let's think about questions here. Uh, what kinds of questions pop up? Uh, Jim, what does it mean when he seeks love? Good. Uh, and, and I'd also maybe ask what what does it mean to cover a fault? And then why is someone who covers faults seeking love? And then in the second half, how does it work that someone who repeats the matter separates a friend from himself? Not the friend from the friend, but the friend from me. So I'm separating a friend from myself if I do that. And yes, Jim, to whom is he repeating it? Good. Okay. So 
A person who covers up a fault of someone else, if we just think about that, somebody makes a mistake or does something wrong or whatever, and um, I try to cover it up. It would seem to me that the person who does that, who covers up the fault of someone else, seems to be after something here. And the verse says he's seeking love. Well, whose love? Presumably the love of the other person. So let's play this out. You do something that hurts me. But rather than deal with you about it, I cover it up. Why? I want your love. I want you to be my friend. So I swallow my anger and I stuff it because I think that's what it will take to get or maintain your love. Okay, interesting, interesting outcome here. Now, in the second half, the verse says, repeats. And Jim, you ask, you know, to whom is he repeating? I take repeat to mean that I tell the fault over to either, number one, someone else, not the person who faulted me, or to the person who did fault me. It's got to be one of those two. And, and let me qualify that. I, I, I tell the fault over to somebody who was not involved, or I tell it to the person who faulted me, but I bring it up at a later and unrelated time. So let's say that I'm mad about what you did to me, but I stuff it when I'm around you. Then I later turn around and tell it to someone else. That telling over, that repeating of the matter to someone else separates people. Mona, to your point exactly, that's gossip. My gossiping about the problem to someone else doesn't solve it and will generally only make matters worse. Now, if I were actually going and talking to you about it because I was truly seeking advice on how to deal with it, that might not necessarily be gossip. But if I just go because I want to vent, you know, oh, you know, Harry did this thing to me and it just bugs me and I wish he would stop it, but whatever it is, okay, that's only going to make matters worse because when I have a problem with someone, generally the first person I need to go talk about it with is the person with whom I have the problem. Okay? All right. Ross, one who forgives, seeks the same. One who harps or won't let go on the matter will lose even his close friends. Very good point. Okay? Uh, all right. And yes, Mona, Linda brought that up to you and, and you agreed with her. Okay, good. So that's the first possibility. I bring it up to someone else later. Now, the second possibility is I stuff the matter and I hold it inside. And later I come back and I toss it back at you, you being the person who, who aggrieved me. I toss it back at you at some inappropriate time. That can also separate friends. For example, you know, if we're fighting about who does the dishes... And I toss in, oh yeah? Well, how about when you left the lawnmower out last week and I had to clean up your mess? That's just pouring gasoline on a lit fire. It's only going to make matters worse. Because what I've done is I've saved that thing inside me, okay? And it's like, you know, 
rankling around on me, just kind of growing like a glowing ember and, and getting hotter and hotter until at some opportune moment when the person doesn't expect it, I pull it out and I slam it at them. Okay, that's also going to separate friends. The issue with the lawnmower hasn't got anything to do with the issue about the dishes. But I want to bring it out and throw it in anyway because I'm trying to find, you know, ammunition for my fight. So Rabbi Moskowitz thinks that the verse is saying that if you stuff your anger, it will come up later. Okay, if you stuff your anger, it will come up later. And it may be saying... The verse may be saying that you should deal with the problem immediately or you better be sure you can handle it later. Because if you bring it up later and the person thinks that you're holding a grudge against them, that's disastrous. That really wrecks, uh, really wrecks relations. So in the long run, what do we learn here? You have to deal with harboring stuff like this. You can't just let it sit there because it's going to pop out and it's probably going to pop out in one of two directions. You're going to be tempted to bring it up to someone else and gripe and moan and complain about so-and-so who bothered you. Or you're going to let it grow until it gets out of proportion and then you're going to come throw it back at the person who... Uh, who bothered you, and that is going to create more of a distance in the relationship than if you just said right off the bat, hey, you know, that comment you just made, I, I, I'm troubled by that, and here's why. So now you've got to investigate what it is about that that makes you angry, and if you hang on to it, what makes you keep it for so long. So when you see this kind of thing happen in your life, it's a trigger to say, ah, I need to do an investigation about this to figure out why am I still angry about that thing? What and why am I hanging on to it? Why don't I just walk over and say to that person, um, you know, hey, can I talk to you about this? Because this is bothering me. Okay, so we need to, um, uh, we, we need to deal with those issues one way or the other. Uh, now, Mona, you've said it kills the DNA of the other person and physically affects the heart and spirituality of self. I don't see the, the mechanism by which it would kill the DNA of the other person, uh, but I certainly see how it can physically affect me because if I'm uh, sitting there um, uh, rankling about something, that rankling in my own mind is having an effect on my, you know, my heart, my guts, my physiology uh, in, in a very practical and physical way. I mean, people, people who are angry all the time, uh, you know, you can, you can see it. Uh, and, and there's a, or at least you can see it sometimes, and there's a, a, physical, a physical effect. Um, uh, Oh, okay, Mona, now I see you're saying ill will as if you harmed the person. In other words, it, it's killing the DNA of the other person in your mind. Your view of them is being uh, tainted. Uh, if that's what you're suggesting, I, I agree. And that's something that, uh, thank you. Uh, that's something that I completely agree with and, 
uh, we do need to do something about in order to uh, uh, make sure that doesn't occur. Um, Ross, you've said, if you can't forgive someone, how close will you ever be to them? That's a very good point. If you're sitting there holding a grudge, that is going to get in the way of your relationship with them. And it's very hard to get intimacy or closeness with a person when you're sitting there with one part of you that would like to slug them in the gut for something that they did to you. Uh, you need to get that dealt with or decide not to, and then you can live with not doing that, uh, or decide it's you know your problem and not their problem or whatever. But one way or the other, you got to deal with it, or you're right. It's going to impede the relationship, and it will prevent that relationship from, uh, from going further. Okay. Any other questions or comments on this verse? Okay. In that case, we'll stop for the evening. Thanks again for joining, and we'll hope to have you join next week. Have a good week.